Welcome to the In The Clouds podcast. In The Clouds is a marketing cloud podcast powered by Lev, the most influential marketing-focused Salesforce consultancy in the world. Lev is customer experience obsessed, and podcast hosts Bobby Tishy and Cole Fisher have partnered with some of the world's most well-known brands to help them master meaningful one-on-one connections with their customers. In this podcast, they'll combine strategy and deep technical expertise to share best practices, how-tos, and real-life use cases and solutions for the world's top brands using Salesforce products today. Welcome to the InnoClouds podcast. This is Bobby Tishy along with Cole Fisher. Cole, do you know Angela Duckworth? I definitely do, um, especially after if you listen to the ultraviolet uh, breakout session keynote speaker. Well, if you didn't, you're about to listen to it. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, Angela Duckworth is a psychologist and bestselling author of the book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And I, I think I may have mentioned this to you before, Cole, but the way I read books is I typically read about half of them. And then I don't read the rest of them. And this was one of the books that I read the whole thing. And it was a great book. I really did read it. I was going to say, was right. the, reason, the reason you put books down is because you don't have the grit, you know, to, to really finish out with them. Oh, man, that was a low blow. Mm. Mm. But you'll learn about that from Angela here. Exactly. Maybe it was the book and the topic of the book that got me through the whole thing. Yeah. I, so I actually took a, a, a course mostly on, like, on grit and some of like the psychological um, sort of like similar traits and, and factors uh, it's just super exciting stuff. So really interesting uh, session um, with, with Angela Duckworth. Yeah, and she sits down with Holly Enneking, Lev's uh, VP of Marketing, and just a little bit more background about Angela. So in a lot of her research and a lot of what the book is about, she reveals the importance of character to succeed in life. And she's pioneered a lot of this work on grit and self-control and um, and how a lot of these character characteristics are obviously in high demand, um, regardless of the, the industry or the position that you're in. Um, but it can also really help cultivate character in ourselves and those around us. So I hope you guys enjoy um, this session from Ultraviolet, Love's first user conference um, back in April 2021 with Angela Duckworth and Holly Anakin. I'm really excited to be kicking things off with a conversation all around the concept of grit and what that can mean for marketers. I'm honored to be joined today by the psychologist and best-selling author Angela Duckworth, who wrote the book Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Now, in her late 20s, Angela left a demanding job as a management consultant to teach math to seventh graders in New York City public schools. Several years in the classroom taught her that effort was tremendously important to success. To begin to solve the mystery of why some people work so much harder and longer than others, Angela entered a PhD program in psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, where she is now a professor. She was also the 2013 MacArthur Fellow and founder and CEO of Character Lab. Angela, thank you so much for joining us today. Holly, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for having me at Ultraviolet and, and uh, welcoming me to the Love community. Yes, we're so glad to have you here. Now, I have something around a million questions that I'd like to ask. <laughs> Obviously, we only have so many, so much time. Uh, so I think we should start right at the top. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how your research around grit came to be. I um, 
you know, had this family, my dad in particular was so obsessed with achievement and, and it's all he talked about. And um, he thought a lot about his own achievement and, and his lack of achievement sometimes and, and the same for his children. And, and I think that um, growing up in a family like that, you kind of have to think like, well, what am I going to achieve? Like what's going to happen to me? How successful will I be? So often my dad would talk about talent in the sense of being intelligent and gifted and everything comes easy. Mm-hmm. And he had his heroes who he thought were geniuses and, um, I thought, wow, you know, um, what about me? Because my dad would, you know, tell me outright that I was no genius. So, so I grew up to become a psychologist to study everything that my dad didn't talk about, right? Um, effort and, and also passion, you know, having something that you care about that you're actually voluntarily thinking about it all the time. And so, uh, grit is something that I've come to Uh, see as a common denominator of high achievers across all performance domains. So, you know, yes, Olympics, yes, Nobel Prizes, but also, um, you know, visionary CEOs and leaders, um, civic uh, activists and more. If you um, ask the question, like, what is grit and why is it important? I'll say, um, you know, it is the nature of challenge that it takes a long time. And what grit is, is passion and perseverance over extended time periods. So not just days or, or weeks, but more like months, years, and longer, the decades, um, to try to do something very, very challenging. And um, I think that's both what grit is, right? Passion and perseverance for long-term goals, but also um, a partial answer, at least to like why it's so important. I just think it's the nature of human achievement that if it were easy, um, and we all know this in this conversation, like somebody would have done it by now, right? So what's left is, is the hard stuff. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I think is really great in the book is that you created this grit scale where someone can sort of assess where they fall in their own grittiness. Um, but then also what I think is really fascinating is that it can change over time. So you may be at one place on the scale now and you may be at one place on the scale at another point in your life. Can you talk a little bit about how you developed the scale and how it can be used and why you might change where you land in it? When I first started out doing this research, I just did the common sense thing. I was um, like, I had been a McKinsey consultant and, you know, I hadn't been trained as a, a PhD scientist yet, but I was like, just talk to people and talk to people who are exemplars. Um, it seemed intuitive and that's what I did. So, you know, call up people who had won awards in their domain, who were um, recognized as world-class. And the grit scale is simply a distillation of the 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 observations of those award-winning, you know, Olympic athletes and so forth um, about themselves. And in particular, and here's an interview tip in case you want to do this, like you need to ask people about other people they admire because, you know, humility and self-deprecation are like not great for an interview um, when you really want to know like what makes somebody special. But when you ask a Nobel laureate to describe their favorite Nobel laureates, like they're very forthcoming. And so items on the grit scale, like I'm a hard worker and especially hard worker, right? Like people would say that about me or that I finish what I what I begin, or that my interests tend to be, you know, in some ways like there's a consistency or a through line over over years. Like I'm pointing in the same direction, right? I'm I'm not walking away from problems, you know, um, and starting new ones, you know, all the time. Those are the items on the grit scale, and um, I would say exactly to your point that you know not only can I say that your grit scale score can change. So maybe you're 4.1 today, but that doesn't mean that you'll be a 4.1 forever. But I can tell you affirmatively that one of the big discoveries in psychological science over the last couple decades is that personality and character 
which people think of as fixed, you know, like I'm an extrovert, I'm an introvert, like I'm a pretty messy person, I'm really tidy, grit. Um, these things actually change. They change over the entire life course. So there's never a point in time where you can say like, oh, I'm fixed. Like this is like who I am. Yeah, I think that goes so well with the point of perseverance as far as sticking with something, you absolutely have the power to change it and can impact it over time. I would say like, I feel I would characterize myself as an introvert, but I can push myself into those extroversions, which means I'm not fixed in it, which I think is really insightful. The other thing that I think is really great about your comment that you made around, you know, asking other people who they're interested in. One of the things I really felt in your book was this like spirit of collaboration in the research that you were doing. You were pulling research from a lot of other, you know, existing research studies that were under way or people who had different ideas in the, you know, in the field you were looking at, even competing ideas sometimes. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that like spirit of collaboration in the work and what that might mean for grit too. My style, like my, um, you know, people have different ways to, to work and collaborate. I find the people who are best at what they do. And then I just sidle up to them and I ask them to work with me. And, and it's for that reason that I have, you know, collaborations with people who I think are actually just better than me, you know, like, Oh, you're a better statistician. Can we work together? Like you're better at personality psychology. Can we work together? Um, I think, you know, I'll just say, you know, relative to one thing you just said about like, Oh, you consider yourself an introvert, but you know, there are times where you can like be more extroverted. Just yesterday, I was talking to somebody who's better than me, um, at personality psychology. His name is Brent Roberts. And he's like the, you know, I guess maybe, maybe the most famous personality psychologist working today is at university of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And here's what he would, I think, want to tell you, which is that um, when we, Brent and I, um, say that like your personality, your character, your grit um, has some plasticity to it. We we don't want to say like, oh, you're going to wake up tomorrow. And who knows? It could be a totally different person. Like there is some stability and there are reasons why people are the way they are that are genetic. And and there are, you know, early childhood influences that have. You know, so we're not saying like, you know, you wake up every day and you're totally a new human being. But the point is. Is, and I think especially this point needs to be made that especially when you don't like something about yourself, you're like, you know, I really wish I were a little more fill in the blank, gritty, um, self-controlled, curious, you know, grateful, um, empathic. Um, especially when those things are things where you're like, I would like to titrate this or calibrate it. Mm -hmm. uh, research is um, increasingly showing that it is not only possible, it is possible like in, to do intentionally. Um, and I think that's what this conversation is all about, because if yeah. you know more about grit, for example, then that should give you an edge, right? It's like a user's manual. Like you want to like change it like, oh, here is the inside scoop on what it really is and how it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And one of the things that I was going to bring up later on, but I think makes sense right now is that, you know, for example, I do not love public speaking. This is something that makes me really nervous, but really? Oh gosh, no. Because <laughs> oh, you're really, I, I think you're really good. I think you're really good at it. Well, well, I'd like to get better at it. And so having an opportunity like this is really a gift for me to really like push myself in that way. But at the same time, there's a certain amount of stress that comes with, you know, pushing yourself out of that comfort zone and to find ways to grow. Uh, do you have any advice for how you find a balance between, you know, pushing yourself and, you know, leaning into that perseverance, but also managing the stress that comes with really being outside your comfort zone? 
You know, first I should say that I don't think any of us are at least like morally obligated to change, you know, everything. Um, and, and even actually, when you think about things like grit or public speaking, whatever, like these are not like really moral aspects of your character. Like, look, if you had an honesty problem, I'd be like, look, let's work on this, even if you don't want to, or if you weren't kind, but we're talking about grit, um, you know, public speaking leadership. I think those are things where it's if you want to, then let's like talk about, you know, advice. So the first thing is to say, I don't think any of us is like morally obligated to work on traits that are not inherently moral in character. Um, now, thinking about grit um, and and you could, by extension, think of public speaking or, you know, other other roles where you're like, I, I might have a desire, but there's a little bit of ambivalence because uh, maybe a natural lean is the other way or there are things that I like about it, but things that I don't like about it. Um, I think you're doing the, the most important thing, which is that you're noticing. And, um, you know, there's a there's a kind of a, um, you know, a, a, a pattern that I see of people who are very successful and happy, which is that. Um, they that they are metacognitively uh, very like they're they're noticing themselves right so they'll they they will like for example I'll just speak of myself like. I will lose my temper. I have actually not a great temper and I will even lose my temper. I'm embarrassed to say with my own children. Right. And I would, you know, if there were ever a reality TV show where they had like 24 seven footage, I'm, I'm sure I would cringe to say, you know, like, Whoa, did I really say that to my teenage daughter when she left her coffee cup on the white counter? Like that's horrible. But to my, um, you know, own benefit, I will say, I noticed that, right? And to notice that you lost your temper and to notice that you wish you hadn't. So when you even say like, you know, I noticed that I, you know, have something that I want to do public speaking and yet there's something like that's step number one. Mm. Um, and the last thing I'll say is like once having noticed that, right? Sometimes you notice an ambivalence and you actually let go of a goal. Sometimes mm. what happens is you say like, you know what? I don't want to go to medical school anyway. Right. And like, that's a healthy uh, kind of clarity to have. And sometimes clarity means not proceeding. Uh, mm -hmm. Other times it means like, I recognize the ambivalence. I understand why. And I am proceeding. And I think just the noticing and owning the ambivalence and being like, Oh, I see why I have mixed feelings, but no, I really do want to, you know, sign up to be the leader in this, you know, next project or then at least with that clarity and that kind of noticing, um, I do think that like it makes it easier to, you know, manage uh, the conflict. And and so much of human suffering, I think, is like unnoticed human conflict. Like you have ambivalence, but you didn't take enough time to mindfully kind of like own it and like look at it. Um, and so you're just kind of like having this low level, you know, stress without actually having a chance to to move forward in a productive way. That makes so much sense. And it goes back to one of the other points that you make in the book around some of the goal setting of having, you know, like narrow, like focusing in on the goals you want that, you know, if you sit down and really map out all the things you want to achieve, it's probably a pretty long list and being able to narrow it down and then break it down into those pieces and parts was an exercise that I undertook after reading the book. And I would say it was very challenging. And I think Hard. <laughs> what you said in the book too, was that there ended up being so many more than you anticipated. And then really focusing in on them was challenging, but beneficial of giving you that focus. 
You know, ambitious people, especially, I think, you know, we want to do so much and we want, you know, like a long list of professional things to happen. And then also you're like, I want to be healthy. I want to eat well. I want to have good relationships. And I want to talk to my best friend from high school. And of course, I want to have a good romantic relationship. And and um, and I do think what this, you know, challenging exercise demands that you do is um, is to say yes to some things and then to say no to others. And I mm-hmm. I, I personally find that really difficult. Um, I, I think um, there's no magic to get around the fact that we each have 168 hours in the week. You know, whether you have... $20 billion to your name or two cents and whatever position you have, like at Lev in my, we all have 168 hours, right? And that's not a lot of hours actually. So um, this prioritizing exercise of sort of like write down all the things that you want. And then, you know, my recommendation is to, you know, you can do this with numbers as a kind of a Ben Franklin way of doing things um, mm-hmm. uh, or not if you don't want to, but like, if you could assign a number of like zero to 10, you know, how interesting is this? You know, how important is it? You know, like zero to 10 and you can multiply, you can add, but at least it gives you some way to start rank ordering and you will realize that you can't achieve everything. So, you know, with, with some reluctance, I think, uh, but I think it's healthy (laughs) to like, you know, and if you want to mentally say like, I'm going to put them on the back burner, but you, you can't do everything on the list. And I think concentrating yeah. at the top and knowing what's at the top is, is um, healthy. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely empathize with wanting to say yes to everything all the time. <laughs> That's very much me too. Now, just mo- changing to thinking about grit when it comes to marketing specifically. One of the things that I find to be really true about marketing is that there's inherently a lot of failure in what we do. Um, campaigns that don't perform well, mistakes sort of across the gamut. I personally have experienced everything from a bad link in an email to a pretty big list to deleting thousands of contacts in Salesforce when I was trying to do some subscriber cleanup. So across the gamut there. And then we talk a lot too within marketing around like A-B testing, which is inherently some one of the options that you've created is going to fail. Um, and I think where marketers can really shine though on the other side of that is taking the learnings from the failure and really applying it to how we're, you know, learning something new, doing something better, avoiding those pitfalls the next time around. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how marketers can use that fuel of, of failure in order to really drive their future success. You know, of course, every industry or profession has failure, but I agree with you uh, that that marketing, especially right, because it is a creative endeavor and because, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And because if you just keep doing the same thing, well, that itself is failure. Right. And that's not true of all occupations. There are some occupations where if you, you know, keep doing the same thing, at least you keep your head above water. So marketing is really fascinating to me from from that perspective. The psychology of failure is interesting, too. And there's new research from um, University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Um, showing, uh, for example, that when we fail at things, there is like a, a real challenge to human beings to like learn immediately from that failure. What tends to happen is you make a mistake, you send out the wrong link, or you like say the wrong thing in a meeting, or, or I mean, as innocuous as somebody asks a question, and the first thing you say is wrong, maybe the second thing you say could be different, but like errors, mistakes, failures. Um, what the ideal response would be is to be like Dr. Spock or a Vulcan and be like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, great. Like, what did I learn from it? But instead we're human, right? Like we're like Captain Kirk. So we're emotionally reacting to it. And and what happens is there's like a little like time where there's a kind of like a blockage where like we should be learning and open to the feedback and like what went on and noticing. But instead we're defending our ego and feeling stupid and getting wrapped up in unproductive emotions. Um, and, and it may be that evolution gave us 
us this um, negative feeling so that we didn't do really stupid things like continue to stick our hands in the fire or something, right? Like it is good to know that it was a mistake and it is good to know that mistakes are not great. But I do think that really successful people have this amazing ability to shorten the amount of time where they're like, oh crap, right? Like they really shorten it to like a microsecond. (laughs) And then they go into this gear where they learn. And um, I'm thinking of like three examples that leap to mind, all people that I've watched them do this like marvelously in the last week or two. So I'm thinking of Danny Kahneman, uh, the Nobel laureate in economics, um, uh, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. So um, Adam Grant, who's a colleague of mine at Wharton and at Penn, uh, and Ray Dalio, who I had to um, interview. And, and, and each of these individuals, interestingly, and um, by the way, I should think of non-white male examples also. Um, There are plenty of them. But I'll just say that these three last conversations that I've had um, in the last week or so, like when they um, make a mistake or they get feedback. So um, in one of these um, conversations, Adam actually gave negative feedback to Ray Dalio. And um, he was like, oh, I think you're not being uh, pragmatic enough in this like thing that you're talking about. And it was so fascinating for me to watch as a third party observer because Ray like just immediately smiled. And he's like, you do? That's great. Tell me like, why? How am I not being practical? And I've seen Danny Kahneman do this. I've seen Adam model this. So I think my... um, my answer to you is 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 that um, a to be defensive is human and it is reflexive and it's probably hardwired. Mm-hmm. B you can learn to um, like minimize that, make that happen quickly, and get over it. Mm-hmm. And then um, you can actually say like, "What can I learn?" I think that's the thing that should be like, "What can I learn?" You know, send out the wrong link. What can I learn? Learn to um, get another person to look at my email before I send anything out. Right? Like, you know, those are the kinds of things. And and in life, if you can truly look at like your successes and your failures as the same mm-hmm. thing, which is information for learning, then I think you can be, you know, like the people that I'm studying, like, you know, extraordinarily productive. And um, also you can uh, alleviate a lot of your own personal suffering. I think that way. Yeah. I love that idea of taking both the successes as, and the failures as opportunities for learning and seeing them both through that same lens. You talked a little bit about feedback there, which I think is another really sort of big piece for marketers. Everyone, you know, has so much exposure to marketing that, people naturally have opinions about it. <laughs> and in my experience, people are very free to, to share those opinions. It sounds annoying to me. I think I would be annoying. <laughs> Actually, sometimes it's very constructive and you see something in a way that you wouldn't you wouldn't have seen it because you're just so focused on, you know, mm. whatever the campaign is or the task at hand. Like you just get so tunnel vision, you can't really see the forest for the trees. Sometimes though, it's not super constructive and it's like, just let me, you know, I'm the expert. Let me do my job and trust me to, you know, own my space. Um, And I would say one thing that I've definitely gotten better at over time, but still struggle with is being able to balance identifying which feedback is valuable and actionable and then how to, you know, constructively dismiss or, you know, at least acknowledge, but not necessarily take to heart some of the feedback as well and finding that balance. I'd love to hear if you have, you know, sort of further thoughts around how marketers can, you know, use that feedback and get value out of it when it really is constructive. Um, Feedback, it really is, I think, like the, the the secret to like kind of everything, right? Because you can imagine like, what if you um, are talking about a specific marketing idea? Obviously, feedback is going to be information, and but also just in your own personal development. Like, what if you have a terrible sense of humor, or you're like a nasty, mean, 
leader, like as long as you're getting feedback, like, hey, you're a nasty, mean leader, or like, you know, that joke was really off color, or you're not being inclusive enough. Like, I don't think you're realizing that you're offending people when you're talking in this way. As long as there's feedback and the openness to that feedback, really, you can kind of get yourself out of any hole and you can kind of get yourself up any hill. So I think the psychology of feedback is, you know, elemental to personal development of, of all kinds. And wherever you are, like in this conversation, you're listening and you know the things that probably you ought to be working on. Just think about it. Like if you got immediate and informative feedback, which the research on deliberate practice shows is typically the best kind of feedback, not annual reviews, but like today in that meeting, you, or this week, I think it would have been better when, uh, you know, that kind of immediate and informative feedback, I do think is, you know, uh, a uh, uh, kind of, um, you know, universal. And it's actually, I think, um, necessary for, for personal growth. Um, in terms of then figuring out like how to, how to, how, what do you do with the feedback? So feedback is good in general, but like, when do you dismiss it and 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 hold true to the things that you're like with? Because you don't want to be a weather vane who's mm -hmm. like, you know, the wind blows left. Okay, you know, that's not what your value proposition is as a professional. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you can't be blind to feedback. Like you have a really good point. I was like, oh, that sounds annoying. You're like, well, sometimes a perspective is raised. Uh, judgment decision-making researchers like Danny Kahneman sometimes talk about an inside out and an outside in perspective. Mm -hmm. One way to think about feedback when you get it is, you know, is this somebody's perspective Perspective who really has a different angle on it, like they're an outsider to the field, um, uh, or are they like coming from the same general place that I am? That can be helpful. Not to say one is always better than the other, but it's, it, but it, it's often the times that where somebody has a different like vantage point where they can quite almost literally see something that you can't see because they're looking at it from this angle and you're looking at it from this one. Mm -hmm. So just thinking to yourself for a moment, like where is the feedback coming from? Where is this person's vantage point? Um, there's almost always some value in feedback, whether or not you agree with it ultimately or whether it changes your ultimate decision. Um, so understanding, is it outside in? Is it inside out? Is it different from my perspective? Mm -hmm. And I would just to give you this conversational um, uh, maybe trick for yeah. getting feedback. Um, if it's negative, I think the first thing you should just say reflexively is thank you, right? Mm -hmm. Like no but, no well, let me explain. The first thing is like, you know what? Thank you. So after this conversation, if I get an email from you, Holly, that says, I loved this, but you did this and I wouldn't like do it again in the future. The first thing I will write back is thank you. Like, thank you, Holly, for pointing that out. That gives me a little time to to really listen. Um, and I think it is the right reflexive thing is to be grateful for the gift of feedback, whether or not you want to unwrap it, but you should, like it is a gift and you say, thank you. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I'll just say is that um, I say this to my own graduate students when they're writing something or I was like, you know, a lot of feedback is when you've gotten over the defensive part, you said, thank mm -hmm. you. And you look at it, you're like, yeah, I totally agree. That's the easy stuff. So put that in the column of like, accept the feedback, incorporate it. Um, when you really have a strong visceral um, reaction against it and you understand why, you understand their vantage point, of it, then that's probably feedback that you could ignore. And in the gray zone, get another opinion, right? You're like, I don't know, that well, maybe, well, now I'm confused. Then get another person's feedback that you value. And I think that, you know, usually ends up with um, some clarity about, you know, how to value it. Yeah, that's such good advice of getting other 
other input from the feedback as well. And I definitely agree with you around the concept of like feedback being a gift. One of my main mentors is a, a CMO named Daniel Incandela. And he says that all the time that feedback is a gift. You should always be grateful for it. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes you don't yeah. have like a gift, but you should still be grateful and you should still find a way to work <laughs> on it if you can. So I appreciate him for that. I think he's one totally right. He is. He's very right. And I love him for it. And I'm very grateful that he's given me that perspective because I would say I'm very much a defense, like I'm defensive and that's where I go to, especially, Jeez. yeah. And especially if it's feedback, not necessarily about me, but like people I'm working with, my team and any sort of role that then I'm like mama bear and I... <laughs> I react and I want to defend. And so it takes a lot of practice to try and like to take that reflective of like, thank you. Let me process this and and understand it better rather than reacting in the moment. I'll give you another like conversational or verbal yeah. trick. It's helped me. So I say thank you. And you know, whether I want to or not, but it's good to have a like re- quick reflexive thank you. You don't have to think mm-hmm. to say. And then um, what's helpful and therapists do this too. They mm-hmm. say things like what I hear you saying is, and then you yeah. give the person the gist. And, and that's actually an authentic question. Like, like, so what I hear you saying is that I, you know, talk too much in the beginning of meetings. Do I have that right? And then the person might say, yeah, that's exactly right. Or they might say, no, 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 that wasn't my point. My point is that you cut people off in meetings. So you're getting real information, you're getting confirmation. And then also, you know, you really want to um, reward people for giving you feedback. I mean, um, Kim Scott makes this point very well in Radical Candor, um, and she's wonderful. Um, uh, and she uh, says, you know, the, the key to being a successful individual, not only is to be hungrily getting feedback wherever you can, not only to be getting over your ego and like actually incorporated, but it's like you, you, you have to reward the person for giving you that critical feedback because you want them to do it again. Mm-hmm. And so there too, the like, the thank you, what I hear you saying is like, that's rewarding them. They feel like they, you know, added some value, et cetera. So, so yeah, I think these like little, the, the reason why these conversational things were so helpful for me is in the moment I am so emotional and defensive mm-hmm. and so, that like, I really can't think like, what am I supposed to do now? So kind of rehearsing in advance, you know, like yes. when I get feedback that makes me feel bad, I will say, thank you. And then I will say, what I hear you saying is, and I'll try to mm-hmm. adjust it. And that immediately gets you into a kind of a more reflective, productive, grateful mode. Yeah. Another thing that I often find too with feedback is sometimes I'm open to feedback and sometimes I'm not. That's a, a great lesson that I, I learned from a man named Russ Hamilton, who I was in like a leadership training program with. And we talked a lot about being open to feedback and opening yourself up to feedback. And so one thing I try and do is I, I try and go seek out feedback. So I will, if I know that like I've done something I really want to hear and someone may not know to give me that feedback, try and reach out and ask like, what did you want more of? What did you want less of? What can I do better next time? And just like focus on those three questions then it like also I find that people are really like grateful that they were asked for their feedback yeah then it's much more beneficial like it's more actionable it's giving me something I can work with and 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 the the way that you ask that is so great and I hope you know people listening can like I mean take notes this is because it's not it's not it's like oh okay I should be looking for it but how and and very often uh and again Kim Scott points this out very Mm -hmm. often when you say like do you have any feedback for me people say no, everything's great. So that kind of like, what could I do more of? Mm-hmm. What could I do less of? And do you have any other suggestions like that? Now, now you're giving people structured questions, right? Mm-hmm. So, so they can't just say, oh, there's nothing to say, right? And 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 then it 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 kind of puts things at an angle too that they don't feel mm-hmm. like they're being critical. Like, so I, I really love the way that you 
uh, phrase that. And I really think these are why mentors are so important and helpful. Mm-hmm. It's like when you say that, somebody here listening could be like, cool, I'm like putting that in my playbook immediately. Um, mm-hmm. And and again, without those examples, I wouldn't have been able to think of the the right questions to ask to, to solicit that feedback for myself. Awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about one of the other concepts in your book that really struck me, which was this idea of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. I think a lot of times in marketing, we talk about these sort of like this dichotomy of the way it was always done. And okay, here's what we've always done, but how do we do it differently this time around? And those two can often sort of be at odds with each other. I'd love to hear just a little bit more from your perspective about like what those the differences between the fixed versus growth mindset are and how you can, you know, actively get yourself more into that growth mindset. Fixed versus growth mindset is um, uh, a duality, an idea that uh, Carol Dweck at Stanford University came up with. She's, I mean, she's my personal hero. Like, you're like, who do you want to be reincarnated as? It's like Carol Dweck. Um, So she was a graduate student in um, uh, at Yale in a in a time where there were all these research studies going on, some with animals, some with people, showing that you know sometimes there was a resilience response to challenge, and sometimes there was the the opposite, like a giving up, a helplessness response. And um, she wondered why, like, why do some uh, individuals respond with like, I can do this. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to ask for help. I'm going to figure out another way. And other people fold uh, in the face of the same exact challenge. And what she uh, determined over the course of her career now is that we have theories in our head and they and they determine what we do and what we think and what we feel um, in ways that are kind of invisible. Um, but once you start to interrogate and notice your own theories, you can actually change. So growth mindset is the theory that human abilities like intelligence are malleable and they're plastic. They can change and grow. In fact, it's possible to get smarter. Now, other people who like here, like, what did she say? Like, you can get smarter, like that, like literally doesn't make sense. Um, that would be more of a fixed mindset. And mm-hmm. I had a pretty fixed mindset for a lot of my life. I think it was having a dad who would like categorize people into like various bins of intelligence. It was also, I was a neurobiology major in college mm-hmm. and I was taught that the brain was pretty like, you know, fixed at a certain point. In the last couple decades, it's been very clear that neuroscience is is on Carol Dweck's side. The brain is plastic. Personality is malleable. So is intelligence. You can get smarter. Um, and and there's never a, a day in your life where your brain stops remodeling itself and changing like synapses and um, even sprouting new neurons. So mm-hmm. I think the idea that's applicable to you know, if you're a marketer. And you're thinking about, you know, maybe a, a, a seismic change in a, in, you know, a particular dimension of your job that you're like, wow, I don't. Um, I would say that, like, it might be helpful to know that a growth mindset about human nature is the more accurate of the two theories to have. And I really believe if you just like take a moment to notice, like, look, I for a living study successful people, but we all know people that we personally admire. You have your own Carol Dweck, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh my gosh, if I could be as successful as this person, I'd be, I would be thrilled. If you just notice what I notice about the people that I study, I'm I'm guessing that you'll notice that these are optimistic people who tend to look at positive dimensions of you know possibilities, not like always dwelling on the limitations. And they are people who kind of like walk around with a theory. It's kind of clear when you start to think about it. It's like that they are 
people who believe in change, you know, who believe in possibility and who believe that human beings aren't like fixed and kind of doomed to keep repeating the same mistakes or, you know, always be in the same rut. Um, so that's the work of Carol Dweck. And I think deservedly, it's it's probably the most famous research that's been done in um, psychological science, at least as pertains to, you know, marketers and the, and the private sector. What I love so much about what you're saying that I think really resonates is just there's this general theme of noticing like self-awareness and having that vulnerability to really like look inward and sort of be self-reflective and find those places. I think that really goes to sort of your overall conversation around perseverance. If you can take the time to, to notice and just be aware of what's going on and where you want to make an impact, that can really be sort of a good first step. I know there are a lot of, maybe everybody on this uh, call in this conversation is a leader. Um, uh, certainly we're all role models for other people and vulnerability is something to underscore. When I started studying these paragons of grid, you know, some of them were like football, you know, NFL quarterbacks and other ones were just like scary CEOs who ran global fortune 100 companies and so forth. And um, I think what surprised me maybe the most of these individuals is um, how vulnerable they were really willing to be um, mm -hmm. with the people that they led. Um, so they weren't modeling perfection. They weren't modeling invincibility. They weren't modeling never making mistakes. Uh, in fact, they went out of their way to mm -hmm. share um, honestly in like, wow, I totally screwed up Monday's meeting. Like first I owe you all an apology. This is what I figured out on Tuesday and Wednesday and I've got a plan. I'd love your advice, right? Like that's what the strongest people do is they're not afraid to um, show weakness. And, and usually they, they do it in the context of showing the weakness and also what they're learning from it. And I, I don't think this is accidental. I think it's true. And as a leader, especially, you got to like own it. You know, you have to be probably your responsibility as it were to be vulnerable is greater than anyone else's because, you know, you're the person that people are looking up to and scared of and, and, and so on. I think that's so true. I know for myself, just as I've gone into bigger leadership roles over the course of my career, that leaning more into that vulnerability has actually helped me build so many more allies within my team, within my peers of just owning up to when something, when you don't know something or when you- Or you feel like you have imposter syndrome or you're like, I don't think I, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I don't I I don't have a full explanation for why evolution gave us all this like desire to not show um our you know like humanity, but it's a wonderful thing and I think it's a universal that it it, it is it's helpful to you, it's helpful to everyone. It builds trust, yes. you know. Um it makes everyone relax. It's like, "Oh god, you feel that way too?" Yeah. I, I was the only one. <laughs> I think that's one of the biggest things is that it, it gives other people permission to voice what they need to. Like if you are willing to, like you said, model that behavior of saying when you don't know something or that you need help with something or something hasn't gone right, it gives other people permission to do the same thing, which then sets all of you up for so much more success of being able to really work through it rather than everyone sort of sitting in their own sort of fear or anxiety or whatever might be going on. I think that's one of the biggest things that I found is I, I just want to create a space where I can give people you know, permission to do those things. So before we just move on from the marketing proper sort of conversation, the one thing I did definitely want to talk about is creativity and grit. You talk about a lot of really interesting artists in your book, um, and it definitely made me think about the really talented designers that I've had the privilege of working with over the course of my career. And it takes so much grit to do what they're doing, to be passionate about design and to be so dedicated to the design that they're doing, but then also to persevere and stay on top of trends and learn new skills and always be 
chasing their next great concept. I'd love to hear more about how you see grit and creativity sort of interplaying with each other. You know, just the other day, I was reading an article about creativity. It was an essay written relatively recently by Anders Ericsson, who is a scientist who passed away recently, but he he was the person who studied deliberate practice and, you know, persevering to over thousands and thousands of hours become really great. And the reason why he wrote this essay is that, um, you know, people always asked him, like, is that the same thing, like becoming a better chess player or like learning how to ski down a mountain better and better and better and getting the note right in the next, you know, time you play some sonata. Is that the same thing as being creative? Because maybe they're different. So he wrote this long essay um, that had, I think, the following point, which is that um, that that in creativity, as you pointed out, like there is like you can't do it without having like an enormous store of like knowledge and skill. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you can't be like five years old and truly creative actually because you don't know enough. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you can do things that are original, but they're not always creativity has a definition in the science of being both novel and useful. So, yeah, mm -hmm. you can do novel things when you're five, but they're not usually like a useful advance for humanity because you don't know enough. Mm -hmm. I think. So I would agree with that. I would agree that there's a lot of grit to being creative. But I do want to say this. I don't think it's the only thing. I think that there's an element of creativity, which is like putting things together like that haven't been put together before and like bringing your personal narrative to things and seeing things in different ways. And that's just not the same thing as um, as grit. So I think grit is helpful. The creativity. I think one could argue that um, at the highest levels, grit is necessary to creativity because you need to accumulate like lots of knowledge and skill. But I don't want to say they're the same thing. And I think, um, you know, you, you all have a famous culture. Right? Like I know that grit isn't the only thing you value. And I and I think, you know, for example, having an inclusive culture, having a creative culture, you know, these are, you know, a kind culture. These things are different from grit. And, and, and that's why I called my nonprofit like Character Lab not mm -hmm. grit lab because I think a, a, a super, super company has like multiple values. And, and mm -hmm. I think, you know, talking about creativity just underscores that, you know, it, you know, obviously you wouldn't just want to think about grit because at least there's creativity. And then of course there's more. Absolutely. Thinking then too about sort of the company culture angle there. One of the things that you say in the book is that if you want to be grittier, you should find a gritty culture to join. And if you're a leader and you want people in your organization to be grittier, create a gritty culture. What sort of advice do you have around not just nurturing grit in ourselves, but in our teams and in our organizations? Like, Where do you start? Culture is such an interesting thing because we all think we know what it is. But then if I asked, you know, like, so yeah. can you write a sentence that says like culture is and then complete it like you were in, you know, like a like 11th grade final exam, like would you and it's like, oh, you know, so so culture is interesting. I think what culture really is, is, is a shared values and traditions mm -hmm. and beliefs of an, of a group. And the most obvious examples are like countries, you know, like countries have cultures like France has a culture, Sweden mm -hmm. has a culture, Ethiopia has a culture. Culture, Japan has a culture. But what's really fascinating to me is every company does have a culture. And it has, is actually very similar to when you think of a country. It's like, like, how do people refer to things? What's the language that's used? What are the key values that rise above the others, right? Uh, and what are the traditions? Like, what are the rituals? Like, what are the inside jokes? Like, you know, mm -hmm. we're, like the way we do things around here. And I think that culture is so important because, you know, apart from our genes and our family, I think culture and like where we are and the way everybody else is acting, talking, speaking, you know, like that influences enormously because human beings are cultural animals. 
So mm-hmm. I would say like, that's what culture is, like these shared beliefs, values, traditions, norms, mm-hmm. language. Um, and in terms of being intentional about culture, I, I absolutely believe that it's important that you have choice, both in the culture you join and then also, you know, the culture that you shape. And I, I really mean that not just for the number one leader, but mm-hmm. for every person, because the nature of culture is that like it is like emergent from the people in it. So, you know, when um, you you start being grateful and you go out of your way to send somebody an email that says, you know, I just, you know, I, this is kind of silly, but I just want to send you an email. I just thought you did a great job in that meeting. And I was just like watching you and I was just like, I, I just figured I'd send that to you. You do that. That makes it more likely that that person's going to send mm-hmm. a thank you note to somebody else. That's going to make it more likely that you have a grateful culture. So I do mm-hmm. think there are these ripple effects and that we can understand culture as very influential in terms of how we act, but also that we can think of ourselves as like basically agents in the culture who then mm-hmm. propagate a certain way of believing, thinking, valuing, talking, and so forth. Um, so that's not a complete recipe for exactly how you do it, but I think mm-hmm. um, it does leave us all with the idea that we have, you know, some responsibility to, you know, if we love the culture of love or, we, or you know, if we want to change something that like we have some agency to do that. Yeah, I think that speaks so nicely to the conversation that Michael Burton, our CEO at Love, and Scott Dorsey, who founded Exact Target, had yesterday. They talked a lot about both the Exact Target culture of being orange and what that meant. And then also for Love, that it's not something that you can manufacture. You can't just, you know, say this is how we're going to act and expect everyone to do it. That it's really, it has to grow organically out of the team and modeling the behavior, like you said, from every member of the organization and, you know, creating, setting an example and really living up to the values that you're putting out there. But it has to be organic. Like it has to grow naturally over time and it can't be forced. Yeah. And it has to be reinforced, um, mm-hmm. not forced, but reinforced um, daily. And I, I, I think, um, you know, every leader that I've ever interviewed, you know, you ask them like, well, after how many years can you take your hands off and just say like, oh, whatever, now it's good. Or like, you know, <laughs> how often do you have to remind? And it's like, oh, no, this is a forever game. Yep. And also it's, you know, it's every day, right? Because you don't want the culture to become something um, that wasn't part of, you know, the the, the vision. Yep, absolutely. Now, before we wrap up, I do have one more topic that I wanted to cover with you, um, which is, you know, the other major theme in your book is around passion and having a passion for something combined with that perseverance. And one thing that a lot of marketers are really passionate about is storytelling. We think about storytelling a lot, how you can craft a message to encourage someone to take an action that you want them to take. Um, And you delivered a TED Talk, which is very specifically about storytelling and in a very sort of specific medium that's very different from writing a book or an essay or a research paper. And you did talk a little bit about it in the book, but I'd just love to hear more about sort of your experience of having to craft that story and how you approached it and, and what that experience overall was like for you. Uh, I'd love to answer that question. That's that's like, I'll tell you the story of how I told that story of the TED <laughs> yes, Talk. So um, I got a call from uh, somebody on Chris Anderson's team, Chris Anderson being the head of TED. I'm actually going to be speaking to him, um, I think, later this week or maybe yes. next. Um, so we've stayed in touch. So um, so I have no idea really who he is, but I have heard of TED Talks. And I know they're kind of like the thing that you should be honored to have, but also probably scared to death um, that you have to deliver. So I say yes. And I go up to New York. I think they had like a theater in Harlem that they had rented out and um, they had an audience of, it was actually like, like a, 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 like Ted often has like a theme for the, you know, series of talks that they're about to give. And so this was all on education. I think Bill Gates was there talking about what he thought about education and Jeff Canada and others. Um, 
And um, I, I, I got coached. And I think for storytellers, all of us, all of mm -hmm. us storytellers, um, I'll tell you what Chris Anderson did for me. So I, you know, had a little, you know, five minute like speech and I was like, right. And he was like, this is really boring. <laughs> I was like, really? I and mean, this is a rehearsal. This wasn't the real thing. And yeah. I was like, I don't know. I kind of thought it was interesting. He's like, first of all, nobody wants to hear about a regression model. And I was like, okay, that I concede. I probably should take out the part about logistic regression. Um, and then he um, explained to me that when you tell a story, right, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm -hmm. It has to have some suspense, right, some conflict, some kind of thing that has to get resolved by the end. So, you know, he helped me set the stage, develop the, you know, the conflict, and then resolve it. And then, you know, to our earlier point about vulnerability, he said, you know, this is your story, right? And the most powerful stories are the personal ones, right? Not a story that you're telling about somebody you never met, but your emotion. And your. so I told the story of becoming a teacher. And then the conflict was like, wow, I thought that the students who are really smart at the beginning of the year were just going to end up like super successful. But often that didn't happen. What was I doing wrong as a teacher? What was going on? And then the resolution was to understand that intelligence isn't everything, that it's not just, you know, being naturally bright that leads you to learn algebra, that there's a lot of motivation and effort. Um, and so the vulnerability part was, I think, you know, sharing that all through my my lens um, and how I have struggled, you know, as a human being to like serve these kids, failed them, um, what I figured out. And I actually ended my talk on vulnerability too, because I said like, now I should be telling you what to do to increase grit. But the, the, the true answer is that I really don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think we should be grittier about, about getting kids to be grittier. So that was the whole TED talk. Mm -hmm. um, I gave it, it was, um, uh, you know, um, you know, I, I want to say this, when you said that there are times where you're like looking for feedback, um, I am sure there are times like Holly, where you're like very, the door is open for critical feedback. Like, welcome, <laughs> tell me all the, but I will say that after I gave that talk, it was so nerve wracking and it was so stressful that I let everyone know that I was not open to negative feedback for mm -hmm. at least 24 to 48 hours. I was like, just tell me I did great. <laughs> and then, you know, later you can tell <laughs> I could have done better. Uh, and I do think it's helpful in this context of like vulnerability and grit, passion and perseverance, feedback, mentoring, that mm -hmm. I, I, I make sure I say, I think that a productive thing to do is to tell people when you are inviting of their helpful feedback. And also it's okay to have a do not disturb sign um, when your ego needs to just, you know, celebrate that it survived um, a harrowing six minute experience. I definitely circled and highlighted that part in the book because, and laughed because I was like, that is exactly me sometimes. Like I just really <laughs> need you to tell me that I did a good job right now. Like that's what I need. And so yeah, I need exactly. <laughs> Mazel tov. That's all I want to hear. Like, like, yeah. just, <laughs> just let me like come back down from this in a week. We can talk about what I yeah. could have done. Hey, we'll, we'll get our notepads out, but right now I need a glass of champagne. Yes, absolutely. Well, Angela, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for your time today and all of these insights. I really appreciate it. I hope that this was valuable for all of our viewers and, and I hope you enjoyed yourself as well. I, I did so immensely. Um, so glad to be at Ultraviolet and thank you for letting me visit your amazing culture. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.